Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned here on the UBS On Air Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners. So uh, joining us for today's conversation here in studio in New York City, glad to welcome back the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Uh, we are fortunate to have with us in person as well, David Bianco, welcoming him back from DWS. David serves as the Chief Investment Officer for the Americas. So, uh, Jason, David, it's great to be in person with you both here at the table. I know it's been quite some time since we last did this in person. There's been some other conversations in between, but thank you for joining us, sharing your insights with our listeners and clients. Welcome back. Thanks for having me and great to be here in person with you. Yeah, thanks, David, for joining us. I think we were saying it was February of 2020. Hard to believe, right? It's hard to believe. (laughs) So let's dive right into it. A lot to catch up on, a lot to cover during today's podcast. Maybe beginning, David, with the big picture of the U.S. economy. What are your thoughts on the resiliency demonstrated throughout the course of 2023 relative to maybe expectations heading into the year, as well as the prospects for what's ahead of us, a soft landing versus a recession, that ongoing debate? Sure. Well, at DWS, our expectations have been for a shallow recession uh, since uh, the start of this year, which has not played out. Uh, We're still calling for a very shallow recession early next year, but we've always emphasized the shallowness of the recession and perhaps a period of very slow growth that the U.S. economy will be settling into. But 2023, year to date, the U.S. economy has defied those expectations. It's not only averted a recession, but it's been uh, respectably uh, good in terms of generating uh, 2 3% uh, real growth, all from the service side of the economy. Now, the thing about the U.S. economy, it's mature, it's consumption-driven, it's service consumption-driven. Uh, these are things that make an economy shock-resistant. And so far, the economy has proven shock-resistant to this more than 500 basis points of Fed hiking, if you want to count that as a shock or maybe you know, slow down, uh, even perhaps small recession by design. Uh, but we, you know, we do think that the economy will feel the pressures of the higher interest rates. And might I say right now, elaborate later, the world economy is very sluggish. China, Europe, these are important for the S&P in particular, but even the U.S. economy has sensitivity to that. I still believe that the U.S. economy will slow down a lot uh, in 2024 and stay slow. Interesting to consider the shape the U.S. is in relative to other regions around the world. We'll dig into a lot of those topics later in the conversation. Uh, Jason, your thoughts on what the outlook might be for the U.S. economy? Well, I think you're like David. We were expecting the sort of the year that by the middle of the year this time we'd be probably in a in a mild recession that hasn't materialized things have certainly been much stronger than expected i'd say where we've evolved to which is i think also probably where the consensus has evolved to is that you know we could say soft landing although that's a kind of somewhat arbitrary term like what that entails i think you know we have sort of decent confidence that a recession probably won't begin for the next 12 months you know um now even in that case uh you know it doesn't mean strong growth I think that the rate of growth we've had thus far this year and what the numbers are coming in for the third quarter, like with the Atlanta Fed GDP tracking estimate at 5.5%, everyone expects it to come down. But it's clearly, I think in general, you know, we think the economy is slowing. You can see that in the labor market and that will continue, but slowing to a level that is below trend growth, not necessarily recessionary. But I want to kind of you know, maybe pick up on a point, David, you made like you know, the mild recession idea. 
so a piece we did a few months ago was just almost asking the question, like, well, why hasn't there been a recession? Like, you know, what's the reasons, you know, you brought up the point of the U.S. economy is like a services consumption-based economy. It tends to be somewhat not immune, but less prone to shocks, certainly relative to 50 years ago. But it also almost feels like there's been sort of rolling recession, so to speak, within the U.S. Housing market last year, manufacturing, that looks like it, maybe it's troughing coming out. Maybe, maybe not. Um, bottoming. Bottoming. Yeah. <laughs> but so how do you then... How do you then think of like what a mild recession would actually entail? Could it be like sort of a rolling recession? So we never really have a big uptick in unemployment. Growth never really goes mm. negative for a couple of quarters. Like how would you define what in your mind is like that like mild recession entails at this point in time? Well, we are expecting two consecutive quarters, uh, basically the first half of next year of small real GDP contraction for the U.S. economy. And DWS does believe that the unemployment rate climbs from 3.8, uh, it's been even lower than that, to about 4.3% uh, by this time next year. So, you know, with a contraction, mild. Yeah. be a mild, but mm -hmm. with that increase in unemployment uh, by at least a half a point, you know, we'd be comfortable saying that the National Bureau of Economic Research will put it down in the, in the textbooks as a really mild recession. I think the, whether... It goes in the textbooks or not. I think we're entering a period kind of like the late 1980s, early 1990s, where global growth and a lot of things, even in real estate in the United States, and just kind of a slowdown from go-go times of the early and mid-1980s, I think we're just entering a sluggish period of, of growth. And that may be the bigger message. Sometimes this recession, yes, no, what exactly is the Fed going to do? Um, you know, what's the bigger picture? To me, the bigger picture is it's a, it's a period of slow growth. And interest rates, what you see right now, particularly on the longer end of the curve, probably pretty normal, uh, sustainable. And so we're thinking it's uh, it's just a world of slow growth and interest rates kind of where they were before the financial crisis. So I want to pick up on a couple of points on that. So one, there's a discussion in the market, even a fear of having stuff for some investors of kind of the reacceleration idea. I don't personally buy it. I mean, like policy will get more restrictive. We can see the labor market. It's clearly been cooling. Do you put much kind of credence in sort of the, the, the risk of reacceleration? I guess it's a risk, yeah. but like it seems quite unlikely given the, where policy is. Well, you know, the, 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 the risk of there not being a landing, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that inflation doesn't come down enough. However, it does come down by um, productivity or, you know, better discipline out of, out of, out of uh, you know, those who raise prices or, or, the, or the Fed engineering that with a small recession. Um, there is risk that there isn't that kind of landing and we finally get inflation in particular to that 2.0% target. And I think it's important that the Fed continue to stick to that 2.0% target. We'll forgive them if it's 2, 2.5, but they should stick to that target. Uh, because if they don't, I think it'll really upset the long-term bond market. But you know, the 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 risk of reacceleration. Not only do we not land, but you know, <laughs> this economy takes off to a higher altitude. Well, some of the data on the service side of the economy would suggest that's you know not a base case, but a risk and a, and a risk to respect. And I think again, it does have to do with services. People want to spend uh, on experiences. And it's not just the lower end consumer that's been fueled by a bunch of things, a, a good labor market, uh, stimulus from, from prior periods. But I think what's being underestimated and not talked about enough is simply the wealth effect uh, that's coming from the stock market. And I don't think of it as a valuation multiple, but with the S&P 500 uh, uh, at 
nearly 160% of, of U.S. GDP, it, it is a wealth effect. And it, it, the stock market's four times more uh, powerful in terms of the wealth effect than it was back the last times we tried to deal with inflation and achieve soft landings like in 1985 um, and even before that. So th- people are out there still willing to spend it if they've got it. And they've got it as long as this equity market is where it is and particularly if it goes higher. That might be the risk of a reacceleration. On that wealth effect, you're saying it's four times higher than the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. How are you kind of measuring it just in terms of stock market capitalization versus GDP? Yep. I mean like what's what's the – That's what we did. We, yeah, if you go back to the, the early mid-1980s, it was 25, 30 percent. In the mid-90s, it was only about two-thirds. And then the, you know, even at the, the peak years of the late 1990s, it wasn't – it was just beginning to get over 100%. That's when some people made a big fuss about it as a valuation multiple. Bad things did happen, but not because of that particular valuation metric. You know, U.S. market cap relative to the GDP has only gone higher. But I would just caution that if the equity market fuels ahead for whatever reason, I think that risk of acceleration in the economy uh, is there. And then the Fed has to come out and punch hard. <laughs> so that leads into another point you made about kind of the longer-term view, growth kind of being sluggish. Something that I've kind of written about almost for two years now is, you know, a lot of pessimism, like talking about the 1970s, the speculation that there's a scenario, I think it's still very much in play of like kind of the opposite of, you know, the roaring 20s that more people are talking about. And I always thought the 90s is the better example mm, that the, the 94, 95 kind of hiking cycle, and there's some parallels, like a lot of hikes quickly caused really bad pain in the bond market. We didn't know it at the time, but, you know, it set up five years of really good situation where inflation kind of came down. So they got to this, let's call it the um, uh, opportunistic sort of disinflation. They kept policy somewhat restrictive. And then, of course, the internet you know, phenomenon. And this time, like, was well, AI the same thing as sort of the internet phenomenon? So there's there's a scenario that kind of plays out. Now, whether that happens or not, the thing that's interesting is kind of going back to your comment about rates that, you know, the tenure of being at, say, four and a quarter, maybe mm-hmm. this is just the new normal. And it does seem like there's a bit of, Investors kind of maybe looking at the last decade to say, well, that was really historically, that was the anomaly. And the tenure at like sub 2% or even 2 and a half, that's unusual. In fact, maybe this is the, the, the proper regime we're in, which if you have GDP growth of 2% and inflation, say 2.5, nominal GDP of 4.5, the tenure should probably be in that range. So if you were to sort of use that framework, is that kind of how you're thinking about rates, why they would stay higher? Like not sluggish growth, not great growth, but something like in that sort of 2% range? Or would you think it's going to even be less than that because the Fed is just going to like, you know, keep squeezing things to get inflation back to two? Okay. So it's a big topic. Yeah. There's a lot. I, I yeah. give you a lot to cover. And, go and ahead. I, I don't really ground my interest rate thinking on the nominal GDP to nominal interest rate type of solo model relationship. What I tend to think of is simply things like, well, I believe that, you know, inflation is going to be about two and a half percent. And I believe that, you know, our star, needs to be at least 1%. You know, the, the real neutral Fed funds rate uh, needs to be at least 1%. So that's 3.5% on the Fed funds rate. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we'll go below 4% uh, until we hit a full-blown recession. On uh, the funds rate or the 10-year? Sorry? To go below 4%? I don't you... think the Fed will cut below 4% oh. without a recession. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's clearly uh, a, a moderate, more than a moderate one, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I'm getting at is I think normal – Overnight nominal rates are something like three and a half to four percent, and then I think about inflation risk premiums, term premiums, and that's what gets me to you know I think four four and a quarter is a reasonable uh, outlook for the ten-year Treasury yield. However, 
the bond market just went through the nastiest inflation experience in 40 years, and the Fed better make sure inflation just keeps trending all the way, all the way down to its 2.0%. There's no more patience. They've given them a two-year pass, and they'll be lucky to get a three-year pass. And now then there's the deficit, which you know most of my career and even in my academic being a student, uh, we, we really wouldn't worry too much about the deficit or the debt to GDP. I'm worried about it now. And, uh, and, and I hope policymakers get more worried about it because if they don't, I think the bond market will get more uh, concerned about it and begin to object uh, to, the, to the deficit and the rising debt to GDP ratio. So, you know, four, four and a quarter percent may kind of make sense to me, even if uh, nominal GDP growth and real GDP growth are really kind of anemic over the next few years. Um, but, you know, I still see risks to the upside because the inflation battle isn't fully over and this deficit problem is now it's got me up at night. So you hope policymakers worry about it. I can imagine central bankers will worry about it. I'm not sure politicians in D.C. are sufficiently worried about it, given all that's going on, even with you know negotiations for the, you know, the budget coming due at the end of this month. So if it's the onus is this near term until things get perhaps really bad, unfortunately, is on the on the monetary side. How then do you think? What would you expect from the Fed? Not just next week, but like in you know the rest of the cycle. And how do they approach it? Maybe a little longer term, balancing. They want to get inflation down mm. to be credible, but also like they can't. Maybe you know the fiscal situation means that they you know it's almost like fiscal dominance. They can't raise rates or keep rates too high for too long because it'll be too painful there. That's maybe more of a medium to long term problem. So how do you think though from near term then kind of going forward? What do you expect the Fed to sort of do? And you well, I, I don't expect the Fed to hike in September. Um, I, I think what they've done is a good job of getting the message out that they're in no rush to cut. And whatever the peak rate is, it might be this rate, nearly 5.5%, maybe it goes a little bit above 5.5%. Whatever the peak rate is, I don't. I think they'll stay on hold for close to a year. Now, DWS is forecasting maybe the first cut, which would validate a soft landing. And I think they should be very careful in delivering that first cut because markets might you know, see it as inflation's been, battle's been won and, you know, gosh knows how maybe the equity market reacts to that and then the risk of reacceleration and so mm-hmm. forth. But I, 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 I would say I don't think they hike in September. I think November is very much alive and as they're saying so. And the reason why I think September's off the table is because the longer term bond market is doing some work now for the Fed. Um, and, if the equity market does some work for the Fed by that meeting third week of November, uh, then, then, then maybe they skip in November. But if the equity market's for, S&P 4,500 or higher, yeah, I think they, I think they put another hike through. I, I, yeah, September next week is, I think, off the table. I, mean, I think it's market, off the table, you know, yeah. They had a chance prior to the blackout period to kind of guide the market because the market was pricing nothing. It'd be a real shock right. if they did something. It's not right. clear that they need to at this point in time. November, I think it's just, yeah, yeah. where is the economy holding But up? again, I think September is off the table because the Fed's been effective in their communication of the, you know, we're not cutting anytime soon. It, we're, we're, wherever we plateau, we'll be there for a while. Um, and so, you know, the markets have finally gotten that message. But the, the next message that I think the Fed really has to stick to, and they, they talked about this at Jackson Hole, they have to win the inflation battle all the way down to 2.0%. If they tolerate it at 2.5-3, or gosh, if they were to be as silly and they know better than this, to move the inflation target to 3%, uh, they're really risking the ire of the longer-term bond market. The, so I guess if we actually go back to like the 90s, I think when they stopped hiking and even started cutting, inflation was still around like 
two and a half to three percent, and it you know was ninety eight before it actually fell below two percent. Now the two percent target wasn't ingrained right, right. As, as much as it is now. Right. But my guess is my conjecture would be that they'll take the like if it takes us to twenty twenty six to get to two percent, we're okay keeping Fed funds rate at four four and a half percent, like trimming a little bit. Uh, if we sort of pivot then from this perspective, like you know what the Fed could do, the state of the economy, thinking about the market's implications, and it, I mean it is. You know, I don't like this term so much, but like, you know, the good news is bad news. It does feel like in the past month or so, it's been very much markets trying to figure out like, is the Fed going to do more or not? Is is good growth too yeah, good? And, right. and so on and so forth, which just means to me like more sort of choppiness for the for the time being. But if you take a medium term view, like, you know, out to the middle of next year, you know, what are your thoughts on equities given that growth environment you're talking about, given if rates are where they are, do you think equities are reflecting rates being higher? Or do that at some point do they have to re-rate from a relatively elevated level for the index level overall? Right. Well, I, I'm cautious on equities. And I think the S&P 500 is basically going to be range-bound between 4,000 and 4,800 for the next 15 months, you know, to the end of 2024. Um, I think the autumn is one where people have to kind of recognize that even if we avert recession – uh, and outside of tech, which I do think will have good earnings growth next year, but we have to see if it's strong enough for the valuations. Outside of tech, I think you're still going to have fairly sluggish earnings growth out of the S&P 500 uh, next year. But um, I, I, so I think people need to, to recognize there's still some challenges for most companies in terms of generating healthy earnings growth. And uh, there's still this risk that longer-term yields climb even higher and it is extremely difficult to justify the 20-ish PE that the S&P 500 is trading on uh, when you have a 10-year yield above 4% and especially a 10-year tips yield at 2% and an overnight rate at nearly 5.5%. You know, you just have to ask yourself the question, um, you know, I don't see much more upside to the PE. So how, how are we going to get the, the equity market to deliver a 10, 15% return over the coming 12 months to not make, you know, just sitting in fixed income mm-hmm. where you make 5, 6%, 7%, maybe with a little credit risk? Uh, it, it, I think the bond market's putting up one for the first time in a very long time, one attractive alternative. You would probably need like the immaculate disinflation scenario where that's right. You would need it, and you know, and, and, and it's yeah. not crazy to expect the immaculate disinflation or the soft landing. Soft landings have a ha- happened. Usually, we talk about mm-hmm. them. 1995, mm-hmm. 1985. After William McChesy Martin's aggressive, you know, hikes in '66, there's a soft landing in '67. People forget about these things, and I've I've forgotten out of my way in the past to say soft landings do happen, um, but hard landings happen too. And because of the resilience of the U.S. economy for the reasons we talked about, I can subscribe to a softer session. Uh, and, 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 and I do think the, the earnings will, will be up next year. Um, but I'm struggling with these valuations. And it's not just tech, which is where my greatest valuation concerns are, but there's still a lot of other companies outside of energy and financials and, Telecom, there's still a lot of companies in the S&P still trading at 18, 19, 20 times earnings. And they don't have the growth potential of digital names. Just for clarification, when you talk about tech, you know, there's the tech sector, but then the seven stocks this year, two are in consumer services, yeah. two are in consumer discretionary. Are you thinking of like tech defined, like those kind of mega cap tech stocks or the actual tech sector? Right, right. Um, I'm underweight the technology sector and the sector strategy fund that I manage. I'm 500 basis points underweight the technology sector. Mm. I'm basically equal weight software within that. Most of my concern at tech is semiconductors and 
tech hardware handsets, that kind of thing. I'm actually overweight the communication sector, uh, including interactive media, search, uh, social media, and I'm underweight the a couple of other names that are often referred as digital names that are in the consumer discretionary. So, you know, out of the Magnificent Seven, I'm concerned about five of them. You gave the example or said a range of 4,000 to 4,800 for yep. the S&P between now and the end of next year. Sort of a range that I've been sort of thought of throughout the summer, now into the fall, or, well, you know, soon into the fall, is some more like a little narrower, like say 43 to 46. But like obviously, you know, the further out you take your horizon, your range is going to expand. Mm-hmm. But and p- part of the reasons why I thought on the downside, there was a bit of a floor earlier in the summer because investors, a lot of people were underweight risk. So there was a little bit of an, there's no Fed put right now given inflation problems, but I felt like there was a bit of an investor put in that any sort of pullback investors who were caught short, defensive this right of year would like use a chance to buy. Right. Now that has probably gotten from underweight risk to more neutral risk. But I still think that if we get to down to like 44,000, if it's a mild recession, earnings is maybe just flat for next year, that investors say, well, this is still a pretty, the valuations are getting more attractive. Uh, you know, so in that range, again, there's going to be sort of a floor resistance. So to go much below 4,000, like you'd need, I think, a proper recession. Uh, would you like – so I guess I – I, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I, I don't want to – you know, I'm not calling for a bear market, calling for a correction that kind of refreshes and makes the equity market a little bit more, you know, attractive versus bonds. Um I, I, I take your point. I do think that there has been a lot of liquidity out there, which has helped. You know, people haven't deployed it, uh, and and but more and more of that liquidity is getting absorbed by the bond market, and the Fed is pursuing with selling assets from the balance sheet. So I think the liquidity side, there's still a lot of liquidity out there, but I think that's moving in the in the less supportive p- position. I, I also think what's just really supportive for the equity market, it's earned a, it's earned it, it's earned a halo of. Wow, this market, you know, for how many years are people going to, going to warn us about the risks? And the S&P 500 has been the place to be for mm-hmm. the past year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, and yep. so on and yep. so forth. And so th- it's interesting that that is now ingrained in the mindset of, uh, both professional and, 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 and just individual investors. Well, if you're an asset allocator, uh, then yeah. and if you go underweight your equity benchmark and the markets rise, it's in theory like an up, you know, unlimited upside. It's right. painful to be, you know, uh, it's it's as painful to be underweight equities when the oh, market's no. rising, Absolutely. as opposed to like people <laughs> so worried about the the downside. Which it's is, it's always painful to buck the trend. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's, it's so you, I think that that's a little bit of people like this year is a good example where everyone, I mean, there's a strong consensus to be underweight risk, right. and I think as a result, people like got their fingers, you know, burned right. a little bit. So you really, I think, have to have a lot of conviction that a recession's coming, like a significant to want to be de-risking or or get too concerned that we're going to go, you know, like to 3,500. Well, look, I mean, I don't mean to bicker on the point, but if the equity market's fairly valued and it's just going to continue its, you know, trend of delivering high single-digit, you know, total returns, then, you know, you can get back into it. I'm not, and I'm not saying to ever exit your equity portfolio. It's just a matter of do you want to be a little underweight or a little mm-hmm. overweight versus your, your typical allocation. But, you know, it's not going away. You know, you can get back into it a year or two from now. And, you know, there's – you can sit in, in, in fixed income, short duration stuff, earn 5 6%, see how things play out. A lot can happen over the coming year or two. And um, I have to think to myself that it's – could be wrong. <laughs> but I have to think to myself, it's unlikely for the S&P to go, you know, parabolic once again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are a couple areas where I think, well, if this were to happen, where could it happen? I, I'm excited about the, um, you know, the, the potential in terms of innovation and eventually earnings and, well, what tends to come sooner is valuations to the upside of biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. And I think the healthcare sector has been forgotten about. Um, it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out during an election year next year. And that's another reason why I think the S&P is range bound. But I, I find the healthcare sector and its medicine makers, uh, pharma and biotech, to just have been come completely ignored as everybody is enamored with artificial intelligence. One of the themes that we actually just published a week ago, our equity team was on like, you know, biotech not, or um, the um, uh, diabetes and you know, the obesity drugs, which obviously has been a big yeah. story this year as well. Yeah. If you think for equities beyond the U.S., what do you like at this point in time? Well, so this is a, another one of these topics where everybody just wants to scream. It hasn't been worthwhile thinking anything beyond the United States. It's been a story of U.S. equities, large cap equities, growth equities, and you know tech digital equities, and everything else has been um, poor know, cousin. Yes. It's just been almost not not. It's just not that exciting. Um, <clears throat> so again, it, it kind of all relates to leadership change. Uh, will fixed income be a better place to be? Will foreign equities be a place, better place to be? Will value equities be a better place to be small? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find myself intrigued by two regions that I think are reasonably valued and one's really cheap, um, and, and typically offer true diversification to large cap U.S. stocks. That's emerging markets, uncorrelated, low correlated, and, and, and cheap. Um, and, and Japan. Those are my two favorites. And my colleagues at DWS, our equities or global CIO view, they, they keep making the, a reasonable point that the European economy is also absorbed a lot of shocks. <clears throat> but I also think it too is going to be in a period of, you know, very, very slow growth. Um, but they do have some really good companies, including financials. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, it to me, uh, when you look at equities, in an environment where interest rates are where they are and fixed incomes offering that alternative again, one has to say, show me where there's a, you know, a lot of upside, you know, twofold upside over two, three years. I, I, I do see that at emerging market stocks. It's a bet on peace. <laughs> How um, do you, for EM though, differentiate between like China, which is a third and everything else? Because China right. is truly its own kind of animal right. right now. Uh, policy response, the way the economy is going. Yeah. Do you... Does that thesis on EM apply to China or is it you're more like ex-China at this point in time? It applies to China. And as you said, for a lot of reasons, China beats to a, you know, a different drum, one that may not be um, uh, pleasant to the years of Westerners, but yeah. it, is a, it is a different beat. It's true uh, diversification, <laughs> that's for exactly. sure. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and as long as it doesn't turn into something that's outright conflict or restrictions on American ownership – um, and if you believe that you know others in the world look and 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 invest in Chinese shares, particularly China Tech, which has been hammered, but they've got their own AI plays and and so forth. Um, so yeah, I do think China is um, <clears throat> worth investing in. Um, I also have tried to diversify that exposure by looking at places like India and Brazil as well. Uh- is we think about sort of asset allocation in general, and you know, you you to point about the like bonds are pretty attractive right now. So our actual preference would be still favoring high quality bonds, investment grade, you know, mortgage backed securities, things that are giving you five, six, seven percent yield with pretty low volatility relative to equities in an environment where even so 
rates could stay the same and you're picking a, a nice coupon, it seems unlikely. I mean, it's a risk case, but unlikely that rates go much higher okay. from here. Or if you get a recession, then you get you know the the duration benefits. So that's it's right. sort of like when I think of just risk reward, that's a pretty attractive environment where our base case right now for U.S. equities is basically flat to year end, yeah. uh, and you know with dividends you know mid single digit kind of returns to next June. So yeah. you know, okay, but you know not like I can get ten percent perhaps from from IG bonds over that time period. So from from well, I mean, would you kind of like, you know, take the same kind of perspective on that to, to the extent you do kind of? I don't want to overagree, but I completely yeah. agree with this. <laughs> I mean, making five, six, seven percent with the possibility of hitting a recession and even a dismac- um, immaculate disinflation that that causes longer term yields to go sub four percent, maybe maybe to three and a half percent on the ten year. Everything would have to work out wonderfully. Deficit, you know, perfect soft landing, but it's possible. Nothing feels as good mm-hmm. as making you know. Uh, that pop on your fixed income from yields dropping and catching that duration gain and then being able to buy equities on a dip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the best feelings in investing. But it requires patience mm-hmm. and it also requires you know that willingness to miss out on some of the most exciting parts of a market when you get those, you know, blow off, to, you know, rallies that come with a lot of uh, uber enthusiasm. Yeah, the only... So I, I agree with that. I you know had a colleague or our colleague Barry McInlinen, who's like our, our investment grade strategist, presented a chart a week ago, where I think for the last seven cycles, where like once the Fed was done, how did the IG index do? And on average, over the next twelve months, it was up about ten, twelve percent. The worst performance was like six or seven. The best was fifteen. That's a pretty yeah. you know nice uh, scenario. If say the Fed was already done in July, like that's right. not a bad environment. Uh, the the thing that sort of concerns me a little bit. I guess this is the missing out the FOMO piece that, and it's the hardest one I think to calibrate. It's like the whole AI story and whether this is, is this truly a mega trend? And there's like five more years to go. Is it, you know, is it just kind of NVIDIA and that's, you know, overdone? Because that's where you could sort of think this is, go back to 96 because we talked about the 90s. That's when Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance yeah. and it's four Except more years. More years. Yep. Yeah. So we all have these memories and, uh, you know, um, Everybody wants to stay in it until the party's entirely over. Um, but, you know, this is this is tough. I mean, because the tech sector is a great set of companies. Um, and most of these semiconductor companies are great companies, too. Uh, the, you know, the real difficult question for investors is what's the what's a fair valuation? And just how much should you expect out of a company to deliver uh, in, in a short amount of time without any stumbles such that you know, you don't have a pullback on on the stock price and the valuations because sometimes, when even great companies are executing uh, in, in great ways, the market can get annoyed with you know missing revenue by a little bit, missing units, or oh, there's a little bit of gross margin contraction. They can get very persnickety when you know you're trading at the valuations that some of these you know names are now, and I I think it's kind of unfair to ask a company to deliver that kind of growth without any hiccups along the way. Um, and I think that's what the equity market valuations are, are are asking to these companies. I have a problem with not these companies. I have a problem with what the market's demanding of them, the valuations. 
Well, we do have to uh, wrap. 30 minutes goes very quick. Hopefully it won't take three and a half years uh, before the three of us get together here at the table. Again, there's a lot certainly we can follow up on, though. I do want to thank David Bianco as well as Jason Dreho both for your insights, your time today covering everything that you did for our listeners and clients. So thank you both for joining us on How Should I Be Positioned. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, David, for joining us today. Great conversation. Till next time. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.